The next stop is Avenue J. Okay, so Vladimir Jabotinsky. First, we have to give thanks, of course, to Turo College for hosting this series. We also have to give thanks to our founding members of the Friends of Jewish History, Norman and Bridget Robinson from Corona, California, very avid watchers of these uh, lectures online. And in fact, when they came to New York a few months ago, we got together, we had dinner, and um, it was really a wonderful experience. It, this uh, lecture is sponsored in memory of his mother, Leona Robinson, who was an avid reader and lover of history. Um, so let's talk about Vladimir Jabotinsky. Let me tell you, first of all, that like most of the classes that I will offer this series, it's highly derivative. There is very little original research involved in the next 50-odd minutes that we'll be speaking. I borrowed it almost entirely from recent secondary sources. I've just kind of made it a little more compact for you, but it is heavily indebted, for example, to this biography, uh, Jabotinsky, A Life by Hillel Halkin, published by the Yale Jewish Live series just recently. Fascinating book, and I strongly urge you, if you want to read further, this is a great source for understanding uh, Jabotinsky's life. Here's a picture of Hillel Halkin. You can see he looks way smarter than me. So definitely, there's a lot to be gained from studying the book directly from him. He has that kind of professorial, you know, contemplative uh, facial expression and the fingers and things like that. So definitely check that out. But let's go to Jabotinsky himself. First of all, I think we should clarify his name. So... Uh, his uh, proper legal name is Vladimir Yevgenievich Jabotinsky. Uh, the pronunciation is properly a Z sound, uh, which is actually a specific letter in the Cyrillic alphabet. It looks kind of like an X with a cross in the middle of it. And it's uh, kind of like the J as in the French name Jacques, not like the J in the English name Jack. In order to make the Jack sound, you actually have to add a D to the Russian alphabet. So his name is actually Jabotinsky. If you can imagine, that's the way the French would spell it with the J as well. Uh, but it's often transliterated into English because we don't have the J sound so popularly as a simple J. Uh, the middle name, Yevgenovich, is a patronymic. In the Russian and many Slavic languages, your middle name is derived from your father's name. Vich means son of, so his father's Russian name was Yevgeny. In Hebrew, it was Yona, and that's what he was known by. Uh, he uh, took on the name Ze'ev uh, later in life because he wanted a more distinctive Hebrew name. Ze'ev means wolf. And that was, you know, quite indicative of his personality, his self-image, and his relationship to the political challenges that he faced. So he's often known simply as Ze'ev Jabotinsky or Vladimir Ze'ev. Sometimes you'll see it translated as Volodymyr because he was actually very close with the Ukrainian national movement. Vladimir and Volodymyr are cognates of each other. Uh, his years are Odessa, 1880. And he passed away actually in this city, and he was buried here in 1940. He remained interned in, in New York, largely as a result of a um, uh, personal and political dispute with Ben-Gurion. But after Ben-Gurion, the, the first prime minister of Israel, passed away, then Israel uh, had his bones moved to uh, Har Herzl, where he rests to this day. 
this is a picture of Odessa that's roughly dating from the time that he was born. And we should understand this is a very unique city in Russia. Odessa is a new city. It was founded in 1794. And it was kind of like, if you will, the Las Vegas of its time. It was created by Catherine II uh, as a new deep water port on the Black Sea, and it attracted all kinds of non-traditional Denzians. Unlike the vast majority of the Ukrainian heartland that surrounded it, which was overwhelmingly agrarian, filled with peasants, with a smattering of shtetlach that were overwhelmingly Jewish, and cities that were about one-third Jewish, one-third Polish, one-third Russian, the uh, Odessa was almost all... Uh, migrants. That is, it took in all kinds of people who did not have any natural connection to the land or to farming. Uh, Jews were very uh, significant in Odessa, some point over more than one-third. Also, Armenians, very big in uh, trade, Greeks, and others. Russian was the lingua franca because that was the, the best common language for all of them, but it was a highly syncretic culture where Russian regularly borrowed from Yiddish words and from Greek words, and it created a kind of unusual commercial melting pot. It was an unusual cosmopolitan center uh, created anew out of the Ukrainian heartland, and so it's a very special city. Mo many... Uh, Jews who come from Odessa today are far more Russified than Jews even coming from, let's say, uh, Lvov, Lviv, or um, Kiev, Kiev. They will be more Ukrainianized there, but Odessa retains its Russified character as a result. It was also, ironically, one of the more tolerant cities of the Russian Empire, since the vast majority of people who lived there had very limited historical depth in the, the town, uh, and since they had such, no one population had any clear majority, it was therefore a city that uh, had a, a much more of a, an open attitude towards immigrants, to strangers, to uh, fremda, to foreigners, and so on. So that was the kind of environment in which he grew up. Uh, here's a photograph of his family. I've got some great photographs from the Jabotinsky Institute in Israel, which is without doubt the world's foremost a repository of Jabotinsky materials. Uh, you can see uh, two of his elder sisters. Uh, his father, Yona, was a grain merchant. When Vladimir was a, a very young child, around age five, uh, he contracted Yenamachla, uh, known in English as cancer, and um, they had to go to Germany for treatment. They lived there for about a year. Um, his father passed away in Germany, and so uh, young Vladimir was... Um, was orphaned at a very young age of six. He also, from that time, even though he was fluent in German, he retained a very bad feeling about the language and the land and so on that never left him. Here's a, a closer image of the young Vladimir by his mother's side. Um, here is another picture of him. He just got this beautiful new haircut. It's a very rare photograph. You won't see too many like uh, like this of Jabotinsky. I have another really cool one of him later. Uh, his uh, his Jewish education was a somewhat idiosyncratic. Uh, his parents were fairly assimilated middle class. Uh, of course, they were struggling after Yona passed away. Then his mother had to set up some kind of small grocery store uh, to keep the family together. Um, and... Uh, 
Vladimir grew up with only a very attenuated connection to his Judaism. Let me read you a uh, passage from one of his memoirs. He was, by the way, extremely prolific, uh, writing not only memoiristic literature, but uh, five novels, a number of plays in several languages. And um, we're not going to touch his literature too much, but I will uh, read a couple of passages. So here he is uh, reminiscing about his childhood, and he writes... Had a, ch- had a Christian boy asked me what I thought of the Jews, I would have answered that I liked them well enough, but a Jew would have gotten a different and more naive reply. This would have been that I knew that someday we would have our own kingdom and that I would go to live there. After all, my mother, my aunts, and even Ravnitsky, that was his teacher, thought so. I didn't have a clear notion of it. It was just something taken for granted, like washing my hands in the morning or having soup for lunch. In other words, he grew up in in a Jewish milieu where there were lots of Jews around, and he associated well with them, but he associated just as well with the Ukrainian boys, the Russian boys, and uh, he knew that he had his own tribe, distinct from theirs, but nevertheless, they were really Odessans more than they were anything else. Uh, His mother was strictly observant, uh, lighting candles, keeping a kosher home, and so on, and she engaged a rather unusual teacher for his bar mitzvah lessons. She was, by the way, his first teacher. She taught him the Hebrew alphabet at the age of six. Uh, His teacher was Yoshua Ravnitsky, who you may have heard of because he was Chaim Nachman Bialik's prime collaborator. Bialik, of course, the great poet of the beginning of the 20th century, worked with Ravnitsky to create the great Sefer HaAgadah, the Book of Legends, which is essentially a a modern retelling of the Midrash that had a a huge impact. Uh, Ravnitsky gave him his bar mitzvah lessons. For a while, he had some kind of attachment to it, but when he reminisced about it later, he said basically that he had no inner connection to his Jewish faith. Uh, in fact, meeting with other Zionists later on in his career, many felt that he was a newcomer to Judaism altogether and that he had no real deep roots whatsoever in the tradition. This is not something that bothered Jabotinsky. It was just um, something with which he was associated. In reality, he was an extremely cosmopolitan individual. He thought of himself as a man of the world writ large. Uh, it happened that he fell into the Jewish tribe and he felt a great responsibility to protect that Jewish tribe, as we shall see, uh, but he did not feel any special religious motivation for doing so. Okay, let me just, I should keep this in my hands so I don't forget. Okay, uh, this is another great picture. Come on. If he were here today, I think he would be embarrassed that I'm showing you this picture of him in a kind of a bohemian costume. Uh, he rarely smiled in his photographs. He was a very finicky dresser. You'll see him dressed almost always, buttoned right up to the top in a you know, close-fitting suit and so on, never smiling, very conscious of exactly how he should look on camera. Uh, he was an unusual youth, uh, brilliant, uh, did very well in his classes. His mother enrolled him in one of the gymnasia, one of the, the more advanced high schools of Odessa. And uh, he dropped out just a few months short of graduation in order to travel Western Europe and uh, work as a journalist. He spent several years in Rome and in Switzerland, uh, had a tremendous knack for languages. Uh, one of his closest collaborators and later biographer, Joseph Schechtman, relates how once they were eating dinner at a restaurant in Rome, 
And uh, there were five waiters working there, each from a different region of Italy with a different dialect. And his friend Vladimir would speak to each of them in their own distinct dialect. Uh, perhaps that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's no question that he developed a deep affinity for the Italian people and the Italian language. Uh, his pseudonym was Altalena, a very significant name later in Israeli history, a very important incident with a boat named after it. Uh, this word Altalena in Italian apparently means swing, as in the musical style swing. Uh, he wrote under that pseudonym, apparently it also means old Italian in Yiddish. I'm not that familiar with that term, but at any rate, he was very, very attached to the cosmopolitan culture that he engaged in, in in Western Europe. He eventually, when he came back to Odessa to visit his family, when he was already only 20 years old, uh, the uh, local newspaper, uh, Odeskaya Novosti, offered him a job as a full-time journalist, and he took it, so that's how he ended up being rooted back once again in Odessa. Uh, and uh, that's where his life would take a dramatic turn uh, with the 1903 pogroms. Let us understand Russia at the beginning of the century. So it was ruled by the last of the Romanovs, Nicholas II, um, a rather ill-tempered, fussy, anti-Semitic Tsar, uh, you know, assailed on all sides by forces wishing to change his country, to improve it through democratic reforms, and he resisted them brutally whenever possible. He was a great friend of the organization known as the Black Hundreds, very anti-Semitic organization that sponsored pogroms. And in fact, it proved to be one of the uh, most favored strategies of the uh, defenders of the old regime to blame change on the Jews. This is something, of course, that never happens since then. We are never blamed for change uh, in society. But at any rate, um, there were many agitators throughout Russia, particularly in the right bank Ukraine, which is the right bank of the Dnipro River, that means uh, towards the west of the Dnipro River that bisects Ukraine, who were agitating uh, for violence against Jews to try and control the revolutionary impulses, and these were ultimately expressed in violence against Jews. The most horrific of which was probably, uh, if you will look at one individual event, the horrible 1903 pogrom in Kishinev, which is uh, very close to Odessa in the country of Moldova at this point. Uh, Jabotinsky, uh, you know, who had had um, not a deep connection to Judaism and not a deep, deep connection to Jewish philosophy or something like that, did have a very, very deep connection to the Jewish people. And he was just transformed almost overnight from a somewhat effete and cosmopolitan journalist to a staunch physical defender of the Jews. He immediately uh, worked to organize uh, self-defense against the pogroms. Uh, and uh, he became quite prominent using his pen as well as his back and his arm in an attempt to protect Jews from further violence. Let us recall, by the way, that this is truly a revolutionary position for Jews to take at the beginning of the 20th century. Just to step back a little bit and put this in context, you know, for millennia, Jews have evolved a uh, strategy for dealing with violence. Uh, typically, it involves one of two options, either bribe the uh, would-be attacker or run away. 
That's essentially how Jews have, because, you know, we're a minority. It's impossible to rise up en masse. There's no democratic, you know, organs where we can express ourselves. Forget about things like the Bill of Rights. These things did not exist. So the only way that Jews could deal with, you know, real and present danger is to either pay off the would-be attackers or run away. What one of my students once called the fee or flee strategy of Jewish existence. Um, and this is, you know, actually well supported by much of the rabbinic literature that, uh, you know, Jews should remain politically quiescent. They should try and, uh, you know, stay out of the notice of larger populations and simply, you know, manage their businesses honestly and decently, but, you know, not try to aggravate the uh, state authorities. So, at the beginning of the 20th century, when pogroms were beginning to uh, rock the uh, Eastern European world, uh, the traditional authorities tended to emphasize these two strategies. Uh, Jabotinsky and others were part of a new generation that challenged this worldview in a very, very deep and significant way. Uh, and they responded either by immigrating to America, immigrating to Israel, um, changing their worldviews entirely through socialism, or in some cases simply standing up and fighting back. The uh, self-protection of, of Jewish organizations through uh, the self-defense modes happened to be very effective. And in fact, pogroms uh, on a statistical level tended to dissipate once the pogromists saw that there would be some kind of resistance to their attacks. But nevertheless, this was a very challenging position to take at the time. Uh, later on this semester, when we speak about, we have a few figures uh, from the Holocaust, we'll see how this this Weltanschauung clash, this Kulturkampf between the younger and older generations of Jews played out in uh, Warsaw, for example. So uh, he joined a group which was codenamed Jerusalem that was actually very successful in promoting an, an anti-pogrom agenda. Uh, right away, he was catapulted to the forefront of Russian Jewish politics because he was a fiery orator and a brilliant writer. And uh, he was amazingly, within a few short weeks, um, elected to be a delegate to the Sixth Zionist Congress in Basel. And we should remember, until this point, Jabotinsky was not really a Zionist. I mean, as we read a, a passage, he had this idea that eventually the Messiah would come, Jews would return to Israel, but he, he was not in any way a Herzlian, a Zionist. He was not in any way a, in fact, he famously said the only time Herzl ever spoke to him was when uh, uh, Jabotinsky went on a little bit too long at one of these congresses and uh, Herzl apparently said to him, your time is up. That was the only thing apparently he ever said to him. But uh, Jabotinsky was largely transformed through the pogroms. The threat of violence, an existential threat like that, made him suddenly devote himself to the cause, and he never turned back from it. He was completely and utterly devoted to Zionism, um, although his particular iteration of Zionism, of course, was different from most, as we shall see. Uh, this particular Congress, this is a, actually a fantastic uh, piece of art, a poster from the period. You can see the kind of mood of the Congress. You see the Jewish farmer, which is... Uh, kind of like an oxymoron for the turn of the century to say the Jewish farmer because Jews were overwhelmingly involved in the professions, the trades, commerce, and so on. Um, and the, um, 
the uh, phrase at the bottom says it's actually from the uh, from Psalms. It's read before uh, saying the, the grace after meals. Those who sow in tears uh, with laughter, they will harvest. Right? Meaning that it's hard for us now, but eventually we will see the results of our efforts. Very kind of interesting art deco artwork. I've selectively put the caption over the. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he. At this time, he also met the love of his life, uh, Anya Gelprin, or Helprin, and you can see here they had one son, uh, Eri, who uh, was born in 1910. He actually uh, eventually became a member of Knesset as well, following in his father's footsteps. Uh, his relationship with his wife was steadfast and constant. They did have some rocky parts, very, very extensive uh, correspondence between them has preserved the record of their relationship. Um, and I, again, encourage you to look at Halkin's biography to get a sense of that. Um, we will actually see Anya again shortly. Now, the most important thing to say about Jabotinsky, of course, is his politics, because he was a politician, he was a political thinker, a political activist. So what I'd like to do is to just give you some orientation to as exactly where uh, he holds in the Jewish political world. I hope this will not be too boring for those of you who are deeply immersed in Jewish politics, but for those of you who are new to it, uh, hopefully this will make it a little easier. So... In American politics, we have the political spectrum, which extends basically from the left to the right. Left-wing politics, right-wing politics. On the left wing, that, of course, moves towards socialism, the notion that the government should be larger uh, and take care of more things in society, um, education, health care, unemployment, social security, things like that are all towards the socialist end of the spectrum, believing that the government should do more things for the average individual. And on the right end, you move towards capitalism. These are not entirely opposite terms, but capitalism is much more about individual freedom and responsibility. That, all right, we will allow the government to take care of catastrophic health care issues, but we think that everyone should individually be responsible for their own health care costs and so on. And similarly, um, perhaps the government should prevent people from starving in the streets, but everyone's own retirement is their own responsibility. So that's the left and right. Obviously, no one thinks about these things, especially in November in an election year. We're all thinking about other things. But that's the left-right spectrum that characterizes much, much American um, debate. Jewish politics would never be this simple. First of all, we should understand that American politics, if we were to put, for example, the Democrats and Republicans on this scale, we'd put the Democrats right about here maybe and the Republicans right about here. And that's at least Republicans not including Donald Trump. That would be right about here, typical Democrats, typical Republicans. But uh, in reality, Jewish politics goes all the way to the end and even beyond, and the same way in the other direction. It's, uh, American politics are so stable because Democrats and Republicans, despite what we read on the news, actually agree on almost everything. So compared to European politics, American politics is really quite simple. Um, now... Jewish politics, before we place people on the left-right spectrum, we have another axis. We have the Zionist axis versus the diaspora axis. Almost all Israel, uh, Jewish politics at the turn of the 20th century is concerned with the question of doekite, meaning here-ness. 
whatever we do, whether it's socialist, whether it's capitalist, whatever it is, do we do it here or we do it in Israel? Should it be something that we invest in the galut, the exile, America, Canada, Brazil, or should we just pick up and do it in Israel? So whichever party you're going to go for, it has to be situated on the y-axis as well as the x-axis. Okay, everybody with me so far? Okay, it actually is more complicated. We'll talk about more complexity next week. But let's map out the main parties and then just quickly look at what they stand for in sequence. So, first of all, this, so, oh, sorry, let's understand where we are. So if we go into this quadrant here, the party that is both socialist and in favor of staying in the diaspora, the most significant party is called the Bund. That's an abbreviation for the General Jewish Workers Society. It was formed in 1897 as an illegal party in the Russian Empire, and it basically said that Jews should be socialists and they should work for a socialist revolution in Russia. Because Jews constituted a distinct population with their own language, Yiddish, because they were overwhelmingly urban rather than agrarian, uh, they got their own party. It was part of the Social Democrat Party, uh, the same party, by the way, that, for example, Lenin came from. Uh, and it was uh, propagandized in Yiddish, propagandized specifically to Jews. But their belief was we should all transform society for socialist values here in Russia. Israel is a pipe dream. Israel is going backwards in terms of, you know, separating from other peoples. We should have Druzhba Narodov, the friendship of peoples. That's the Bund's position. Uh, so now if we go back out and let's look at the right-hand quadrant, which is both capitalist and diaspora. The most significant party, and it, by the way, it was tiny, it was not a popular party, uh, was the Volkspartei. And this was led by the historian pictured here, Shimon Dubno. He believed that Jews should, of course, remain in the diaspora because Israel is a malaria-infested swamp and there's no way that we'll be able to colonize it. It's just a ridiculous waste of time. Uh, so we should stay here in Russia, but we should organize better. We should have, let's say, something like federation. And in fact, the Jewish federations of America are founded basically on Dubno's ideas. But he was saying, keep our regular capitalist economy, but we'll do it in the diaspora in a more efficient way. Now, backing out, let's say we go to the top right quadrant. These are capitalist Zionists, so to speak. And this is the largest individual party, the so-called Algemeinet Zionisten, the general Zionists. Herzl, of course, pictured here, is the most famous of the general Zionists. These were people who said the most important thing is to develop Jewish populations in Israel. Uh, we don't really care about what kind of economy they set up. We assume it's going to be a Western European economy, kind of a parliamentary democracy. If you've ever been to Haifa, that's kind of like Herzl's vision of, of what uh, a proper Israeli society should look like. You know, tolerant and relaxed and people wear little pince-nez and things like that and drink coffee out of little cups. That's the kind of general Zionist. And this was the most popular of the Jewish parties as a whole. Finally, let's back out again, and we go to those people who believe that Jews should go to Israel, but it would be a shame if they created another Vienna in the Med on the Mediterranean. Rather, they have to create a worker's paradise in Israel. These are socialist Zionists, 
And by the way, I'm only giving you one party, but there are really about seven of them. In fact, each of the categories, there are always slight shadings between various organizations. But this is the most important, the Poaletzion, the word itself for the party sounds socialist, the workers of Zion. And this is kind of an iconic photograph. You see, of course, everybody's a farmer. They're all very happy and very tanned and so on. They're all women because it's very egalitarian. That's also a socialist value. So these people believe that Jews should move to Israel and create a worker's paradise there. It should be a socialist country in Israel. And, and of course, you recognize modern Israeli politics because they're all derived from these various philosophies. Now, where is Vladimir Jabotinsky? So he doesn't exactly fit the mold, but if we have to put him somewhere, I would put him way out here in the top right corner. Intensely Zionist and intensely anti-socialist. Uh, and he created a uh, political movement, political ideology called revisionism. The term revisionism is somewhat problematic. It was borrowed really from post-World War I vocabularies in which the loser states, after the Paris Peace Accords and the Treaty of Trianon, uh, wanted to revise the post-World War I settlements. Right? A lot of countries like Germany, Austria, uh, certainly the Russian Empire, they were big losers after World War I. They lost territory, they lost prestige, and so on. They wanted to revise those treaties. So revisionism borrows from that, but it's sort of twisted in the sense that we want to revise the way people think about Zionism. Specifically, it's not so much in terms of any particular policy, but in terms of a style. Herzl, for example... Uh, his style of Zionism was shuttle diplomacy. Go to this important person and, you know, make your pitch. Go to that important person and make a pitch. And, you know, schmooze and cajole and talk a lot. And hopefully, with the goodwill of intelligent men, Israel will eventually come to exist. Jabotinsky felt that that was a huge waste of energy and that no one will allow Israel to be established without the force of arms. And therefore, he argued for a military approach, a hard-nosed, prone to violence, or at least ready for violence approach that was forged in his experience with the pogroms. But you don't have to believe me. I have a very special treat for you now. I found actually some footage of Jabotinsky himself speaking about his political philosophy. Uh, it's in Yiddish, and uh, it was made in 1934. It's not certain whether or not he, um, uh, he actually released this film, but it, before I show it to you, I just want to give you a couple of words of introduction. Uh, first of all, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to actually see and hear someone we speak about in these classes, because we've been talking about, you know, basically the Spanish expulsion for so long. I was so surprised that we could actually, you know, get this kind of footage. Um, he made this film as a kind of a, a propaganda effort to sell people on his view of Israel. Remember the year 1934, right? Hitler has just come to power. The, uh, the Nuremberg laws have not been passed yet, but there's definitely... You know, a lot of threat imposed on the Jews of Germany. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the English are uh, very, very um, hesitant to allow Jewish migration into the Holy Land and so on. And so he's speaking really from a neo-prophetic stance about what will happen to Judaism. 
and what to the Jewish people. Uh, he, uh, it's a staged film. You'll, in fact, at one point, because it's not edited, you'll see one of the, uh, the, the filmmakers come out and actually hit one of those clapboards to say, you know, we're on the fourth take now. Uh, he, he used an audience of his family and friends. You'll see his wife and his son in the audience and his close collaborator, Joseph Schechtman, and they're listening very attentively to what are clearly prepared and rehearsed remarks. It's not a live presentation whatsoever. Um, it's in Yiddish, and it came with Hebrew subtitles. I added some English subtitles to make it a little easier. This is a two-minute video. Let's hear Vladimir Jabotinsky himself speak. Unsere Arbeit nach dem Krieg hat angefangen erst eigentlich im 1920 und äh, seht die Resultaten in 13 Jahren Zeit. Äh, seht, wie darf in die letzten Zeiten von einem merkwürdigen ökonomischen Aufschwung, wie es fällt und fällt gesehen der Vergleich zwischen dem, was man bett und dem, was man gibt. Für die ganze 18 Kadoschen von ökonomischen Aufschwung haben wir also gebeten 44.050 Zertifikate und bekommen 15.200, 34% plus die Auflage auf die Touristen. Die Mandatregierung weiß ganz gesund, was das bedeutet. Das ist doch die normalste die gewöhnlichste Form Existenz für jedem gesunden Volk. Nicht nur große historische Völker wie Engländer, wie Franzosen, aber die kleinsten Nationen, was haben bislang nicht in Verdiensten, die, die Albanier, die Abyssinier, sie haben auch eine Form von Existenz, was heißt ein nationaler Staat, und die ganze Welt gefindet das für normal. So, ich ist schon einmal gefallen auf dem größten Gedanken, dass die jüdische Lage ist nicht normal und man will sie normalisieren. Folgt doch von dem logisch, dass die einzige Lesung ist, zu geben sie euch die normale Form von Existenz an nationale Medine. So logisch ist das, als das haben gut verstanden euch die englischen Staatsmänner in der Zeit, wo man hat vorbereitet die Balfour-Deklaration. Numéro 4. Und jedem, was sagt, dass das ist ein Hohl, einfach mir, lasst uns frei kolonisieren, weil wir euch bald weisen, dass das ist eine Wirklichkeit. Okay, it's fascinating to hear him speak. Notice that, although he spoke in Yiddish, the uh, the brief slides used were in English. They're actually in the full version of this, about 45 minutes, which I didn't want to use because I don't want to, you know, it would take up all our time. He had other slides as well to show how few Jews were allowed in and yet how much productivity they had produced. Uh, but he clearly was intending this for a larger audience, a European audience that are more likely to read English than other languages. Uh, it's It's also fascinating to see how he was interested in exploring new media to get his ideas across, something which I find a great affinity for. Okay, so let's uh, go on. Um, 
So here he is, revisionism. It's more of a style, more of a, a posture vis-a-vis political change than uh, any real series of, uh, of, of policy statements. It's more of a sense of like, how can we really get this done as opposed to what exactly are we trying to do? Uh, he was quite active in um, anything associated with military conquest of Israel. Most significantly, perhaps, uh, he was recognized as the founder of the Jewish Legion. Uh, early on in World War I, he uh, threw in his lot with the British. He felt that they were the best possibilities for change in the land of Israel. And uh, the British ultimately gave in and allowed him to create a mule corps, which was kind of like a transport corps that ultimately saw uh, combat in Gallipoli. But they did not actually see combat per se in Israel. Later, he did serve in a, um, in a different division actually in the combat as well. Uh, here is uh, his association was especially promoted by this very close bond he formed with Joseph Trumpledore. Uh, this was a war hero from Russia, lost his arm in, I believe it was the Crimean War. Uh, no, that couldn't be. That was like 40 years before he was born. So he lost his, oh, I think it was in the Russo-Japanese War, the one that brought my own grandfather, Elohim, to Canada because he did not want to fight the Japanese, despite the proximity of authentic Chinese food. He decided to go to Canada. Sorry about that. Uh, Trumpledor is uh, a, a war hero both in the Russian context when he became a Zionist and moved to Israel. He was, of course, martyred in the Battle of Tel Chai. But uh, he and uh, Jabotinsky formed a lifelong bond. They saw things very similarly to one another. And in fact, Jabotinsky would name his uh, youth movement Betar after uh, Brit Trumpledor, the covenant that we owe to Trumpledore. It also has an ironic name. It, uh, Betar also is the name of a city, of course, that was lost after a, a brutal war to the Romans back in uh, roughly the year 70. Uh, here's a picture of the Jewish Legion. You can see it was, it's fascinating that one of the first uh, military organizations that featured Jude is Jews is associated with Jabotinsky himself. Uh, in the mandate period, that's when Jabotinsky becomes really a national hero for the Yishuv, for the Jews struggling in the, uh, the British-held territories in uh, Russia. I'm sorry, in, the, in Israel. Um, this, of course, is a document that transformed everyone at the time. This is the Balfour Declaration, which uh, Jabotinsky, like other Jews, saw as a transformational document that would uh, pave the way for the state of Israel. Uh, the, the key text here, of course, Balfour was... Um, uh, the um, uh, prime minister at the time, and he delivered a letter to Lord Rothschild which expressed the king's thought, which said, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. At this point, the party was on. Everyone broke out Kiddush because... You know, that was all that the Jews needed to hear, that the British government was in favor of setting up a home for the Jews in Israel. However, if they had read a little further, they would have seen that they were pulling back from that statement a bit by saying, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. 
So this second clause of the Balfour Declaration was later used by the British to backtrack on many of the promises that they had made and to limit Jewish immigration because of saying, hey, the Balfour Declaration, it was only given in the sense that it wouldn't offend the people who were already living there. And of course, that created a tremendous amount of tension resulting ultimately in the, um, the near civil war that caused the British to leave it to the United Nations. Uh, in... Um, in 1920, there was uh, one of the many anti-Jewish riots that occurred in Israel at the time, and Jabotinsky, as you would expect, uh, began to agitate and organize Jews for self-defense. Um, Nineteen of his comrades were arrested for being involved in this agitation, and they were sentenced to 15 years for the illegal possession of three rifles, two pistols, and 250 bullets. Jabotinsky stepped forward and said that uh, he is solely responsible for all of this, uh, that they were not to be held responsible, and so they were released after uh, three months, and, um, and after a great amount of outcry, uh, he was also released. But he did spend time in the jail in Acre, which uh, was an extremely important sort of like uh, building his credibility for the later Zionist uh, establishment. Uh, at this time, his political philosophy, really through the 1920s, his political philosophy began to coalesce. Um, he uh, adopted a very militaristic uh, standpoint. He adopted a, a philosophy of uh, Jewish political life that really conformed to the dictates of something called integral nationalism. Now, this is uh, one of the very touchy aspects of studying the life of Jabotinsky. And if, if you have been following some of the pre-lecture debate that has been going on on Facebook and other social media, uh, there are people who will actually call um, Jabotinsky a fascist, very strong word, and there are others who will say that he is the most clear-minded visionary of all Jewish politicians of the modern era. So we have to understand exactly what is going on here. What is, if we can use this term, fascism? And is it fair to apply to Jabotinsky? So there are a few, let's say, uncanny similarities. Uh, journalists becoming very militaristic is common to lots of fascist leaders in Eastern Europe. It's a weird kind of coincidence. Somehow going not from a military background, but going from the humanities into militarism. The predilection for... Uh, medals, uniforms, marches, things like that. Yeah, okay, we see that a lot. But let us also recall that in the 1920s, fascism did not acquire the very dark name that it would through World War II. It was the winning political philosophy. Il Duce was transforming Italy. Uh, of course, in Germany, they had another dramatically transformationalist leader, and it was drag taking these nations out of poverty and uh, second-class status and, um, and bringing them up to a position of pride and of self-reliance. It was really, you know, at the time, it was hard not to admire these political movements despite their negative attitude towards foreigners. Is it fair to lay that charge at Jabotinsky? The record is actually mixed. There are some quotations from Jabotinsky's many, many speeches that would seem to lean one way and others that would mediate that. 
in my humble opinion, and I would not consider myself an expert on Jabotinsky at all, I would say that it is a uh, misunderstanding and a misapplication of his thought to try and lump him in with some of, God forbid, the genocidal leaders of, uh, of Eastern Europe. Uh, although I would think it is fair to say that Jabotinsky was not afraid to use very harsh methods to achieve his goal. And in fact, he had bitter, awful feuds with Zionists on the left, most notably Ben Gurion, who felt that you know, his views were simply far too radical and far too violent to be tolerated within a democratic organization. He, of course, would split from the Zionist party over these issues, and, um, and we'll discuss it in, in a few minutes, uh, how those splits worked out. Let me just look at one particular aspect of his ideology that I think will shed some light on this question. He placed a lot of emphasis on something he called Hadar. Hadar is a Hebrew term that's hard to translate exactly. It sort of means like glory, beauty, perfection, you know, something like, you know, it's related to Hadras Panem means like someone who has like a glowing face. They just have a respectful looking face with like a long white beard, let's say, or something like that, Hadras Panem. So he really emphasized Hadar as a way of life for his youth movement, Betar. So let me give you a couple of examples of this here. Although it is, this is a quote from 1934. Although it is important that everyone strive for Hadar, it is particularly important for us as Jews. The life of exile has greatly weakened in us the healthy instincts of a normal people, above all, in relation to the outer forms of our existence. We all know and sometimes complain to ourselves that the average Jew considers it superfluous to pay attention to his manners and appearance. Yet just as everyone should attend to his personal hygiene, not because of what others will say if he doesn't, but even if he lives on a desert island, as a matter of self-respect. So every word he utters and every movement he makes should reflect a higher consciousness of his lordliness. Every man must be a lord unto himself, the Jew especially. We Jews are the most aristocratic people on earth. Behind every one of us stand 70 generations of ancestors who could read and write and who spoke about and inquired into God and history, peoples and kingdoms, ideas of justice and integrity, humanity and its future. Every Jew in this sense a prince. It is a bitter irony, the consequence of exile, that Jews are regarded everywhere, even by themselves, as lacking the social graces of a nursery school child. Now, I'll just continue this, but you note how, you know, he's not emphasizing Jews as warriors, Jews as, you know, uh, mighty people. He's emphasizing Jews as intellectuals, as exploring the ideas of God and so on. But at the same time, he's really emphasizing the notion of what we would call self-respect. That you should behave in a way, carry yourself in a way that shows that, you know, being a Jew means something positive. Here's my favorite part. I read this to my wife. She really enjoyed it. Hadar consists of the thousands of trifles that make up our daily lives. Eat quietly and moderately. Keep your elbows out of sight when you eat. Don't slurp your soup so that you're heard a mile away. When you walk with your friends in the street, don't hog the sidewalk. If you climb the stairs of a house at night, don't be loud or wake the neighbors. Let women, old people, small children, everyone go first. If someone is rude to you, don't you be too. And this and an infinite number of other trifles give Betar members Hadar. It's a beautiful kind of sentiment. I think you get from this, these quotes more of a sophisticated idea of 
what his right-wing ideology really meant. It was not comparable to the ideologies that we see in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe at the same time. It borrowed, perhaps, from some of them, and maybe it had some ideological roots, uh, but it's hard to say it's the same family. Um, so, what happened to the revisionist movement? In 1925, uh, he split from the general Zionist party and formed another organization called the World Union of Zionist Revisionists. Not very successful on its own, but highly influential as an ideology. Uh, later, another split in 1935 created the New Zionist Organization, once again moving towards uh, more uh, away from the other Zionist parties. But I will mention, by the way, that I didn't include on this list, uh, splits to the right. There were revisionists who felt that uh, Jabotinsky was going soft, that he was getting too democratic and they wanted him to be more right-wing. So you see stronger groups. Finally, uh, there was huge influence on the Irgun, which was um, a more right-wing paramilitary group that ultimately came together to form the Haganah, the, the nucleus of the Israeli armed forces, and a right-wing splinter organization, not under Jabotinsky at all, Lehi, known as the Stern Gang, with an even stronger uh, right-wing association. Um, and all of these parties influenced the very important parties that are alive today, Likud, Kherut, many of the right-wing parties, Yisrael Beitenu, for example, see Jabotinsky as an intellectual ancestor. Very important political uh, consequences. Uh, oh my gosh, we don't want to go late, so I'll go very quickly. Uh, turning point in 1929, Beitar members on Tisha B'Av of that year um, stage a demonstration on the Temple Mount. Uh, this demonstration... Uh, in favor of Jewish nationalism, uh, offends many of the Arab populations, and they go on a rampage, in particular in the city of Hebron, south of Jerusalem. A horrible massacre, particularly felt in the yeshiva that was situated there. Uh, and the, uh, the mandate authorities, the Britons, the British, cracked down very heavily. They felt that Beitar instigated the riot. That's not really a fair assessment of it, but there's no question that Beitar was more provocative than other Israeli groups or other Zionist groups at the time. And their response to it was to hold Jabotinsky personally responsible, since Beitar was his youth movement. He was uh, exiled from Israel, and he was consistently, repeatedly denied a visa to return to Israel uh, by the British. Uh, he spent the rest of his life traveling around Europe and America, uh, raising funds for various Zionist causes. He was actually quite prophetic in predicting the Holocaust. It's chilling to read the kinds of things that he would say, not only actually about the Holocaust, but even about World War I. He, was a, he had an amazing ability to anticipate what was going to happen in Europe. Um, he attempted to create an evacuation plan for Jews from Europe, which of course went nowhere. But with his long-standing feud with Ben-Gurion and the opposition of the uh, British authorities, he ultimately died of a heart attack here in New York City and was interred in a cemetery locally. As I mentioned later, uh, after Ben-Gurion passed away, then uh, he was brought to Israel and buried there. And you can see from this 100-shekel note as an example, his ideology uh, is very influential in Israeli politics. 
his name adorns almost a hundred streets in Israel, many squares, and of course a major research institute in his name. So he's perhaps one of the most prominent Zionist thinkers, even though he spent his entire life in the opposition in the Zionist movement. So all in all, a very complex figure, a very controversial figure, but I appreciate the uh, patience that you've shown in listening to this lecture. I hope I'll see you, God willing, next week when we have another extremely complicated and controversial figure, uh, Rav Cook, one of the uh, most important rabbis of early 20th century Israel. Thank you very much. Stand clear of the closing doors, please.